But I want to start a new uh, series of sermons today. Let me turn my Bible right side up here. That would be a good start, I think. But uh, you will probably recall from hearing the Minor Prophet series, the last book of that series, of course, was Malachi. And I want to go back to the book of Malachi for just a moment to start this. Uh, because I want to pick up a thought here that I think is very, very important for the end-time church. The end of the book of Malachi, <clears throat> where he's been getting on the ministry and upon the people as well, and then offering redemption and salvation and blessing to those who would obey him, <clears throat> he comes down to chapter 4 and reminds us that Christ is going to return, and then gives... Uh, some parting thoughts at the end of chapter 4. Verse 4, Remember you the law of Moses my servant, <clears throat> which I commanded unto him in Horeb, for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. <clears throat> so this is an end-time prophecy for the end-time church. And we are reminded to keep Moses in mind. And then it says in verse 5, a scripture which we all were very familiar with through the decades and worldwide, thinking that this had to do with Herbert Armstrong, which at this time I do not believe did. He may have been uh, a minor type, but he certainly did not restore all things, and we're finding that there is much, much that was never restored, uh, new information uh, that we have to process and put into our lives. And not only that, but... He died, and the end didn't come, and it's been well over 20 years now, <clears throat> 22 or so, and the end has not come. So we're looking for another Moses and another Elijah to come, which I believe it's very clear in Scripture, and I won't go there now, I've done it before, uh, are the two witnesses, both Zerubbabel and Joshua of Zechariah and Haggai, and Moses and Elijah here. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So it's speaking of the end time just prior to the time when the day of the Lord is to occur. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now, in worldwide, I don't think we went into this deep enough or deeply enough, we thought that the fathers and the sons physically uh, needed to be turned to each other. And certainly that is true, because this world is trying to separate families. The destruction of the family is right before us uh, in divorce rates and all kinds of breakups of families that are occurring. Uh, there is dysfunction in the family throughout our society, and it's increasing around the world. Now, <clears throat> I think that if there is an Elijah to come that is to do this, it's something we might ought to start to consider now, uh, to bone up on and be aware of, and doing what we can to get in line with what God says has to be done. Then, when this scripture is 
particularly and specifically fulfilled, wouldn't it be nice to already be walking in step? Wouldn't it be right and good to be moving in the direction that we know that God is going to send someone us, someone to us to accomplish? I don't think it's too early to begin to consider that. Now, in that series done in 97, 98, I wondered about this scripture and what Elijah did and in what form this would come about. And I went back and read the story of Elijah, trying to figure out just what this scripture meant, because I figure if it is there, then it should be able to be understood. So I went back and read the story of Elijah and Kings. Actually, I read it several times and pondered it, and then through prayer and going over it a few times, suddenly it began to come in focus of what God meant by this statement, turn the, fathers, uh, the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers. And I see, at this point, three levels on which that needs to occur. We need to have our heart turned to our Heavenly Father, number one. That's the highest level and the highest form that this scripture would apply. Uh, we are the children of God, and we need our hearts turned to our Father in heaven. And in fact, that has been the basis of most of the message that has been delivered in this little group over the last uh, decade and more, really. And that is to turn ourselves and our whole hearts to God in heaven. That is the highest form of this. Then I saw something in the story of Elijah that made me realize that there's another level, and that is to turn our hearts to our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and even Joseph. And that we will find throughout the Bible, that we're to look to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then thirdly, on the lowest level, but still very important, is the turning of the physical children and their fathers' hearts to each other. Now that's the level we always looked upon it as, and I don't think it's far deep enough or, uh, or encompasses nearly enough. But I began to realize, too, <clears throat> that in the story of Elijah, there had to be something that occurred that would cause even the physical fathers and their sons to turn to each other. Because in analyzing the circumstances in this world, and regrettably in the church as well, we find that families are coming apart, and there is very little respect and honor between parents and children, that our children are being sucked into this world, at an alarming rate, and it has been a, an uphill battle in the church to keep our children from turning to the idols of this world. I can remember when I was a child, my dad trying to turn me from rock and roll, and Elvis Presley and all those people. And it was a very difficult task for him because the beat and the rhythm sort of got into you. 
to the point you really, really liked it. And you liked it better than you did your dad. I mean, that's putting it pretty bluntly, but dad would say, don't listen to that. And every time he came in the house, he'd flip it off. And when he'd leave the house, I'd flip it on. And he told us to wear a belt and pull our pants up high. And when dad was around, my pants were around my navel. He wanted them around my chest. And the minute he disappeared, they'd come down. He wanted me to wear my collar down, but it was cool then to wear your collar up. And he had an ongoing battle, as did every other father almost in the church, in keeping us where we ought to be, getting us where we ought to be, and then trying to keep us there, because we wanted to follow the ways of this world. And we liked the things of the world better than we liked what our parents were trying to teach us. And even in that, I believed in God. I believed in the church. I wanted to do what was right. At the time, my goal was very strongly to go to Ambassador College. And I wanted to do the things that would make that possible. And I wanted to set the right example before the teachers at school and everything else who would make the recommendations to the college. When I was in sight of the teachers, I tended to look better. But out of sight of dad and out of sight of the teachers, the pants came down and the collar came up and the music came on. Satan and his angels, his demons, appear as angels of light. And they make the music, the entertainment of this world, so compelling and so powerful <clears throat> that our children have extreme difficulty turning loose of it. It is a pull in that direction. And it didn't occur just to my generation. It's gotten worse and worse. Elvis Presley and Ricky Nelson and those people are tame. I mean tame compared to where it's gone now. It was bad enough but now it's worse. And with every generation, it gets worse. We recently had the Britney Spears phenomenon. It's gone on for several years now. When I would go to Africa, in the shopping malls, I would see Britney Spears posters all over the malls, billboards, selling perfume, selling music, selling clothes, I don't know what all. I go to South America, Brazil, Argentina, Chile, everywhere I looked, in the airport or in a mall, pictures of Britney Spears all over the place, just plastered everywhere. Where did that wind up? She and Lindsay in Paris, in and out of jail with DUIs, families breaking up, Britney about to lose custody permanently of her children, finally getting to the point that they shave their crotches, don't wear panties, and get in and out of cars to show the whole world. So shameful, so ridiculous, 
And now we have a whole generation of girls who are doing exactly what Brittany, Paris, and Lindsay have done because the addiction is so strong. That which they shouldn't even consider showing to the world or to boys until of marriageable age and then only to one that they're about to marry and then don't show it until you're married. Following in that order. I went into Walmart the other day. I didn't see any pictures of Brittany anymore. She's a train wreck. Made hundreds of millions of dollars, fame and fortune, and she's an absolute wreck today, in and out of institutions. Whether she will even survive and not commit suicide is a question. Teen idol. I walked into Walmart recently, now they've got another one started. Posters everywhere, this time appealing to the 5 to 10-year-olds. Got to get them early. <clears throat> Got to start them early so you can get them captured and kept through their teen years. Ruin them soon. Get them addicted. What's going to happen to this newest one now that's appealing to the 5 and 10-year-olds? She's going to go into teenage, and she's going to be the same train wreck that Brittany, Paris, and Lindsay are today. How do I know that? Because I know Satan's system, and I know the direction it goes. It is going the same direction it has always gone, and it won't change until he is bound for a thousand years. So they start earlier and earlier with our kids. Brethren, parents, we had best be aware, be alert, be alive. They start things out so innocently that don't appear to be wrong at all. But then once they capture you, your interest, your idolatry, then it begins to twist and turn and get worse. This new one will make hundreds of millions. If time goes on, wind up the same way and take your children with her. That's the direction it will go. We are in a world that is doing all it can to pull the children away from their parents and to the ways of this world and destroy them before the millennium even comes. We have foreknowledge. We have incredible understanding that Christ is coming very soon now to bind Satan a thousand years, to bind his demons a thousand years, to get rid of all the idols of this world, whatever kind they might be, to restore the family, and to cause people to live in peace and harmony for a thousand years. Going to happen. Our children can be part of it. Or they can be drawn away into this world before our very eyes and be destroyed, be destroyed along with the world. Be wary of the wiles of Satan. Because that which can look so innocent can wind up being so disastrous.
Let's go back for a moment to the story of Elijah. Back to 1 Kings. This is not going to be a series about Elijah, but I want to lay a little background here. 1 Kings. I don't want to go through the whole story today. Uh, We've done that before, Malachi, and you can go listen to it. And I'm not going to even give the detail of what I did in that sermon about the hearts of the fathers and the children and so on. Uh, Just a few comments here. But Elijah realized that all Israel had turned from God and were following Baal. And it was a terrible time in the history of Israel. King Ahab and Jezebel were in co-rulership of the land, and there were 450 prophets of Baal that were going the wrong way. Now Elijah stood up against them. He called all Israel together, and he said, let's settle this once and for all. Who is God, and who represents God, and who is Baal, and who represents him? If Baal be God, follow him, and if God be God, then follow him. And how long will you halt between two opinions, two ways? It was the same crisis that we in the church face today. We have the way of Baal out in the world, and we have the way of God that he's called us out to try to follow. And how long will we halt between two opinions? How long will we cling to this world even as we physically try to separate from it? How much of it will we retain? How much of it will we go from here and travel to it in the towns and cities around us? How long? Will we bring it into our homes via TV and Internet and radio in whatever way? If God is God, let's go God's way. If Baal be God, then what are we fooling around with religion for? Let's go and follow Baal. God hates lukewarm. He hates it. He spews it out of his mouth. We have already experienced being spewed, brethren, along with the rest of the church of God. How long will we halt between two things? Now Elijah backed it up. He called the priests of Baal over, said, let's figure, let's find out right now. And you know the story about how he had them pray to Baal. They prayed and prayed and prayed, beginning in the morning, time of the morning sacrifice, I think it was. And then he egged them on. He says, he's asleep, or he's on a journey, or he's busy, or he's doing something else. He doesn't appear to be listening. So they yelled and screamed all the more and began to cut themselves with knives and blood gushing all over the place. And still Baal did not answer. Then about the time of the evening sacrifice, he says, all right, enough of that. Let me try. So he put together 
the animal sacrifice, put the wood on there, start the fire, and then he said, bring water. He wet the wood down, they dug a trench around it, wet it some more, and I think the third time even they wet it, didn't they? Let's pick it up in verse 31. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Eternal came, saying, Israel shall be your name. So, in his mind, it was important to restore the altar of God and to remember the twelve tribes of Israel. In other words, people, let's remember who we are. We are not of Satan. We are not of China. We are not of India. We are not of... Greece, we are of Israel. Let's remember who we are here. Okay? And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Eternal. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed. Well, that's what I've already said. And he put the wood in, the or in order and cut the bullock in places and laid him on it. And he filled four barrels with water and poured it on. And he said, do it again. And he did said, do it again, and the water ran about the altar, and he filled the trench also with water. And it came to pass at the time of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Eternal, hear me, that this people may know that you are the eternal God, and that you have turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the eternal fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is the God. The Lord, He is the God. And then he rounded up all 450 of the priests of Baal and took them and slew them. Ran them through with a sword or cut their head off or however he did it. Now that impressed all Israel. They said, ooh, we're going to quit following Baal, we're going to follow God. Now I believe that that will happen again in this age that God is going to do such, such powerful, incredible miracles through His church, through His people. But finally, our children will see that God is the hero and that the fathers and the mothers who worship God are the true people of God. And when something like this happens, it is going to make the gods, the idols of Hollywood, the music world, and everything else that this society has to offer look pretty pale. I think that is what it is going to take to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children on a physical level. I was unimpressed with my dad's opinions about music, and a lot of the things that were going on in society then, just as your children are unimpressed with what you have to say, and they're more impressed with the world. Now, they may believe on some level, 
They may want to do what's right on some level, but it is very, very enticing out there. It is very difficult, and they have urges and feelings that they don't know what to do with or how to control, how to handle. And you need to be close with your children to help them handle what they are trying to do as opposed to what their bodies and minds and emotions tell them they want to do. It's a difficult struggle. But understand. And try to help them separate from this world, not go to it. It's easy to spoil our children. It's easy to take the easy route and give in. It really is. God says, don't marry outside the church. Dating is the process that leads to marriage. The church has always had the policy, since I was a child, not to date outside the church. But they want to, and it's easy to give in. But you're playing into Satan's hands, and you are submitting your children to temptations that they should not have to go through. And you are risking them getting tied up with someone outside and going ahead and getting married anyway. And it becomes very, very difficult. going to take something powerful, not so that they will kind of go along, but so the deep respect and understanding of who God is and what he stands for and who their parents are and what they stand for, so that that respect is there. Joel 2 says that there will come a time after he gives the former and latter rains in the first month before the day of the Lord, that he will pour out his spirit. Young men, the young women will dream dreams and prophesy, and great miracles will occur just as they did in Acts 2. And it will be very impressive. And it will turn the feelings and the hearts. There will be a respect there that has never been there before. And if this is not done, God says he will smite the earth with a curse. It has to come. Now, if we know about it ahead of time, before it ever gets here, don't we have a leg up? Aren't we headed in the right direction? Won't it be easier? And can't we be helping our children in that direction now by living the way we ought to? You know, what good does it do when you tell your children, don't watch this kind of movie, and then you watch it anyway and tell them, don't you look now. Or you go out of the room now during this part. I've seen parents do that over and over. This is for adults, not for children. No, it's not for adults, it's for sinners. It's not for children or adults. It's for Satanism. If it's something your children shouldn't watch, I think chances are pretty good you shouldn't watch it either. But if you go ahead and watch it and tell them to go in the other room... What are you in their eyes? You're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. 
we have to make some changes. If we expect our children to respect us and to honor us, we better be practicing what we preach, making some changes in what we watch and listen to. Otherwise, how can we expect anything of them? And when we give in to their appetites, at whatever age, we're not helping them. We're making peace by stopping the argument, maybe, but we're letting them pull us the wrong direction and letting them go the wrong direction. This is serious business. If God's own people will not change some things, God will wipe out the entire earth, smite it with the curse, because it is only for the elect's sake that those days would be shortened and flesh would be saved alive. If there are not the elect on earth, the whole population of the earth will be totally wiped out. Now, where are the elect? Who will stand? Elijah took a stand. Strong stand. He went up against all Israel and against all the prophets of Baal. What do you think the two witnesses are going to do? They're going to stand up against the whole nation. They're going to stand up against all religion. They're going to stand up against the whole world. and bring plagues, blood, and fire, and death, and destruction for those who will not obey God, who will not listen, and who oppose them. Will our children then begin to show respect for the church? I think for the heart to truly turn, that's what it's going to take. That's why someone has to come along and turn those hearts through the power of God. Otherwise, it won't happen. We'll float along, we'll float along, and our children will float out into this world and be destroyed. They have strong opportunity to live in a time of peace and raise families and children in marriages that won't break up and peace and happiness. They have that opportunity before them. If you'll do what's right, if we all do what's right, and our children do what's right, they'll be there. It's up to us, brethren. It really is. But I think it's going to take something like Elijah did to get their attention, to get the church's attention. And even then, we know, 90%, will go the other way. They'll wind up in the tribulation and probably die there. 30% of them, I think, Zechariah indicates, will repent in tribulation, but very likely physically die in it anyway, but be saved in the end. But why even go there if we know and can do something about it? Now notice that he invoked the twelve tribes by putting twelve stones here. And when he prayed, 
He said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel. And there is a key. When you read the story of Elijah, he looked to God first and foremost, then he looked to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He looked to history. He looked to the fathers. Now, let's go to Romans 4, because we're getting down to what this series is about. We've preached a great deal about our Father in heaven and turning with all our hearts to Him. That has been the very basis of this ministry now for a long time, since 96, really. But I think we need to spend some time on the second level, and that is turning our hearts to our fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because that clearly is shown in the story of Elijah as being a part of what God is talking about in Malachi 4. Here in Romans 4, notice verse 12. And the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. So here scripture calls the father of the faithful Abraham. Now what did Christ say? Will I find faith on earth when I return? Belief, trust, faith in God was one of the main things that Christ said would be lacking and it was questionable whether he would find it. Now when Elijah is first mentioned back in 1 Kings, no, no, it was a little later on, I'm sorry, not when he was first mentioned, but a little later on, I think it was in 2 Kings, first part, my memory serves. The king was sick fell through a lattice, didn't know whether he's going to live or die. So he sent messengers, go to the gods of Ekron and inquire of Baal whether I'm going to live or die of this sickness that I have. Perhaps he had some internal injury or maybe he was cut and had an infection, I don't know, but he was sick from the fall and didn't know if he'd live or not, so he inquired of Baal and the gods of Ekron. Now, God intervened the messengers on their way to Baal and told them to go back. Send Elijah. So they went back and the king says, why did you come back? So we met this guy, told us to come back. What did he look like? Well, he had on leather clothes and he was really hairy. And the king knew by that 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 was Elijah. So I said, oh, that's Elijah the Tishbite. Didn't want to hear that. And the message that Elijah sent was, because you went to the gods of Ekron and Baal to find out if you were going to live or not, you will die. God tells us to be anointed in the prayer of faith will heal the sick. Belief and trust in God. And yet we go so often to the gods of Ekron and Baal to ask them their prognosis as to whether we'll live or die. That has become very, very popular throughout the church of God. In the 50s and early 60s, we were taught that God healed. 
And very frequently, we saw God heal. And then more and more, people went to the doctors for a diagnosis, and then they went more and more, not only for diagnosis, but treatment. And less and less, we have seen healings occur. Until they've almost gone away throughout the church of God. You'll hear of one here and there, but not too often anymore. And used to, you heard about it a lot when people would get together to Feast of Tabernacles and compare stories. Do we have faith? Does the church have faith? Do we really trust in God, or do we give lip service to God and then go do things our way? Elijah made a big point of it. And he made a big point of going back to fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He invoked that God. Genesis 50, verse 24. Genesis 50. And Joseph said to his brethren in verse 24, I die. And God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from hence. So Joseph died. They embalmed him and put him in a coffin in Egypt. Later they carried him out of there. They said, you're going to go back to the promised land. Are we in the promised land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob today? I believe we are. Herbert Armstrong understood that when he wrote the book on Ephraim and Manasseh and the tribes of Israel. This is the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, was he standing in the Middle East when that promise was given, or was he standing here, Abraham, when that promise was given? He said, the land you see north, south, east, and west of you, is the land I will give you. And your seed will multiply as the stars of heaven, as the sands of the sea. Where did that happen? Middle East? Not on your life. Never did happen there. Where are we today? We are in the land of promise. And when that land was promised... He says, you look every direction around about you. And then he told him, go, you start walking. Go see this land I promised you. This is the land your seed will inherit. Well, he's our father. We're his seed. This is the land we have inherited. There are virtually no Israelites in the Middle East today. We listened to a tape the other night in Bible study by someone not connected with us. He's connected to the Church of God. And he said, you may have picked up on this and you may have not. I might not have ten years ago, but I did the other night. He said, I defy anyone to show any proof that there were Israelites living in the land of Israel in the days of yore, speaking historically. This man who lives in Jerusalem and went there because he thought that's where he should be, 
says there is no proof that Israel or the Arabs were there anciently. Now that dovetails and coincides with what we are beginning to learn, that there were no Arabs there and there were no Israelites there until more modern times. And they've not been able to prove those, that presence before David. And that land began to be settled because it was settled here first. I'm seeing more and more evidence that that is the case. We know we're the descendants of Israel, and I think it only follows that we're living in the promised land. This is the holy land, the promised land of God. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here, would we? If we're Israel, then we have to be in the promised land, don't we? Herbert Armstrong realized that on some level, saying that we were the tribe of Manasseh, I believe it to be Ephraim now. I think the evidence is in, and that makes that pretty clear. Exodus 4. I'm laying a little bit more background here to show who Abraham is. Exodus 4, verse 3. And he said, Cast it on the ground. And he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from before it. This is Pharaoh and Moses. You know the story. And the turtle said to Moses, Put forth your hand and take it by the tail. And he put forth his hand and caught it and became a rod in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. That will happen again. But Moses had to, be, had to show that the same God that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob worshipped was the same God he was dealing with. And we need to know here in the end time, as descendants of Moses, that those are our fathers. Exodus 12, and here I want verse 13. I think I wrote down the wrong one. Forget that one. Let's go to Galatians. doesn't really matter. It's just more of the same. Galatians 4. And here I'll start in uh, verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman, Sarah and Hagar. But he was of the bondwoman, was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. So the, the promises that God made to Abraham would come through Sarah, not through Hagar. Hagar was to produce a nation as well, but they would not be blessed of God in the same way. Uh, which things are an allegory? For these are the two covenants, the one from the Mount Sinai, which enters to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answers to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. So we have our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we have our mother, Israel, through Sarah. So we have both our fathers and our mother to consider. Now we're going to see in a moment that Sarah fits very importantly into this story as well. Uh, Galatians 3. 
Let's look at verse 14. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Christ Emmanuel, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So not only is Israel blessed through Abraham, but the Gentiles would be grafted in as well, and they would receive the blessings of God through Abraham. So it doesn't matter whether we're blood Israelite or whether we're blood Gentile, we still have access to God through Abraham. Um, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Verse 15, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannuls or adds thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He says not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, which is Christ. So Abraham is tied directly to Christ, and we to Christ, through Abraham. Now, let's go from there to Isaiah. Isaiah, and here let's go to... Uh, I want to pick up the context a little bit here. Chapter 48, remember, 40 starts the crying in the wilderness and to tell people about God and His sovereignty and so on, uh, and to speak a message of peace through God in the millennium, that when Christ does come to reign, things will be good, and that they will be good even before then with God's chosen ones who will be set as a light to the world and receive every blessing that comes. But he says, Hear this, O house of Jacob, which are called by the name of Israel. That would be us. And this is a prophecy. And are come forth out of the waters of Judah, which swear by the name of the Eternal and make mention of the God of Israel but not in truth nor in righteousness. They call themselves of the holy city, but are not righteous. It is very possible to call ourselves part of the church of God and yet not be living up to what we ought to be living up to. It's real easy to sit and say everything is okay, but not be doing what we ought to be doing. We covered that a little bit at the beginning of this sermon. I don't have my watch on. Is it after two already? Or after one? Five after one. Okay, I'm still all right. I looked at that, and it looked like two for a second. <clears throat> anyway, uh, he tells us to get out of Babylon in verse 20. Get away from it. That's what uh, Elijah told Israel when they were going the way of Baal, and we're going the way of Baal in Babylon today. Same story. Then he said in, verse, in chapter 49, Listen, coastlines, to me and hearken, you people, from far. That God had called him, and he had a message to give them, that they were not doing what they ought to be doing, and that Zion would even begin to feel in verse 14 that God had forsaken her. You know, we're, we're here, and nothing seems to be working, nothing seems to be happening much. Uh, maybe God's forsaken us. Well, what does God say to that emotion, that feeling, that can sometimes come even on us. We know what is coming. We know what's important. We know what we need to be doing, really. Sometimes we ignore it and go on, and we begin to feel like, well, maybe God isn't with us. Maybe he isn't doing what he said he would do. Here's God's answer. 
to those who feel left out and like nothing's happening. Can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yes, they may forget, yet will I not forget you. <coughs> a woman will forget to nurse her little child before God will forget us. That's a pretty sound promise, I think. Behold, I've graven you upon the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your children shall make haste, your destroyers, and they that made you haste or waste shall go away from you. This Babylonian system we have around us is going to go away. God is going to destroy it. If we put our stock in it, our interest in it, our time and energy into it and follow it, it's going to be taken away anyway. Why not just go ahead and get rid of it? All right, so he's, he's giving this message, turn to God, basically. Now he says here in chapter 50, verse 11, Behold, all you that kindle a fire, that compass yourself about with sparks, walk in the light of your fire. If you don't want to go God's way, go ahead and start your own little fire and walk in the light of it. Give out your own sparks. Give out your own light. You know, God tells us to be a godly light to the world. Not look or act like it, not imbibe of it, but be a light to a darkened world. When we go to this world, for whatever we go to it for, we are going into darkness rather than pulling back from it and shining light into it. That's what we have to do. But he says, if you're not going to follow me, go ahead, light your own fire. <laughs> I think that this is a very interesting and almost amusing, almost humorous. If you don't want to walk in my light, make your own light. Be a sparkler. Remember those little sparklers we used to wave when we were kids? How long did they last? A few seconds. They sparkle, sparkle real pretty, and then gone. Well, what about those who walk in their own fire? And in the sparks that you have kindled, this shall you have of my hand. You shall lie down in sorrow. You're not going to live. You're going to die. And you're going to lie down in sorrow. You're going to die with the world. Now, those of you who want this world and you want the light of this world and you want to sparkle in it, go that way if you want, but you're going to have trouble. Now, Hearken to me, chapter 51, you that follow after righteousness, you that seek the eternal. Now he says, all right, we've got these people that want to go the way of the world. Now we're going to address those who actually want to seek righteousness. And I think all of us here would be included in this group. We really don't want to go out and go out as a flame of fire in the world, flame out with them, do we? No, we really do want to follow righteousness in spite of our human nature. You that seek the eternal, look to the rock whence you were hewn, and to the hole of the pit whence you were digged. Now where does he point us then? Look where you came from, he says. Look to Abraham your father, and to Sarah that bore you, 
For I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. He says, if you want to follow after righteousness, if you want to seek God, look at Abraham and look at Sarah. Those two individuals are very, very important in history, your history and mine. They were where God began to develop a people to himself. And we've already read where Abraham is the father of the faithful. Will Christ find faith when he comes to the earth? If you and I are to have faith, where is the most logical place to look? To he who other than Christ was the most faithful man who ever walked this planet. He is a tremendous example to us, and yet it's easy to overlook. How many of you, how many of I, <laughs> have gone back and read the story of Abraham this year, last year, the year before, the year before, the year before? How often do we go back and start in Genesis 12 and read about Abraham? and think seriously about the man. Probably not too often, do we? We might once in a while. I know I do sometimes. But I don't go there probably nearly as often as I ought to. And I haven't learned as much from the man as I need to. He says, if you'll be righteous, if you'll seek God, look to Abraham your father and to Sarah that bore you. I called him alone, him only, out of all the people that were on the earth at the time he called him. Because he was going to work with that man, and that man was going to follow God and do what God said. Tremendous example for us. For the Lord shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places, and he will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the eternal. Joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Now we've gone through this not too far in the past and seen that this is a prophecy about the time of the two witnesses and the end time church that will be built, the latter temple. The timing is given. Let's go down a little bit more. Hearken to me, my people, verse 4, and give ear to me, O my nation, for a law shall proceed from me, and I will make my judgment to rest for a light of the people. Now, I won't be the spark of chapter 50, verse 11, that the world has, or that we as sparklers in this world might give out, but it'll be the light of God. My righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, and my arm shall judge the people. The coast shall wait upon me, and on my arm shall they trust. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look upon the earth beneath. For the heavens shall vanish away like smoke, and the earth shall wax old like a garment, and they that dwell therein shall die in like manner. But my salvation shall be forever, and my righteousness shall not be abolished. So what's the timing of this? It's premillennial, just before the day of the Lord comes. And those years just preceding it is the time he's talking about here. And he's saying 
that he is going to comfort Zion and make her waste places like the Garden of Eden and turn the wilderness into the Garden of God. And what he's saying here is if you want to be part of what God is going to do in building villages, protecting them, and having his people become a light to the world, look to Abraham and to Sarah. That's what he's saying here in a nutshell. You have to live and walk like Abraham and Sarah if you want to be included in what God is about to do. Now, does that put this on a pretty important level or what? Do we begin to comprehend what God meant when he said in Malachi 4 that we will have our hearts turned to our Father? It is second only to turning to our Father in heaven. If we turn to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and especially to Abraham, then we're going to be blessed as no one has ever been blessed before. Now you're going to see very shortly, I don't know whether I'll get to it today, but you're going to see very shortly that when Abraham was told to go, he had much cattle and gold and silver. He was a very, very wealthy man. Now, is it interesting here what analogies God uses in describing Abraham? He didn't say, look to the branch of a tree. He didn't say, look to the head of the horse or to the fig or whatever. Notice the analogy he used when he told us to look to Abraham. Look to the rock whence you are hewn. We're cut out a rock. And the analogy, of course, is that the stones of the temple. But Abraham was a man who apparently dug in the rocks and to the hole of the pit whence you are digged. You dig treasure, gold and silver, out of the ground. And those are the analogies that God uses when he tells us right here at the end time, before the day of the Lord, to look. To look to Abraham who dug in the ground, and you are from that same pit. God is going to find his treasures, his gold and silver that he'll make his crowns with, among those who will look to Abraham who dug physical gold and silver out of the ground, and you might be surprised, we might do the same thing at the end. I think there's scriptures that indicate that someone will do that for the sake of Jacob, God's people. Just before this in Isaiah 44 and 45. And the temple treasures and all of those things will be returned. But what we're reading here is today. It's important. It's where we need to look. And I think it very interesting, the analogies that God uses when he says, turn to Abraham and to Sarah. So there's an example here for men and women, Sarah being a very, very important part. He is about to turn and bless his people. But we'd better be thinking about living like Abraham. Now I'm going to cover one more uh, passage today. Well, I, no, I'm going to cover two. Let's go right now to, to Zechariah 10. 
Zechariah 10. Now I'm going to read this uh, beginning with verse 1. Ask you of the eternal rain in the time of the latter rain. That was from roughly December through April, the last significant rains coming in April. The time of the latter rain. So the eternal shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to every one grass in the field. For the idols have spoken vanity, and the diviners have seen a lie and have told false dreams. They comfort in vain, therefore they went their way as a flock. They were troubled because there was no shepherd. <coughs> now God says we should pray for rain at the time of the latter rain. He tells us in Joel 2 that we are to pray for the former and the latter rain in the first months, which begins this year in April, on April 7th, first day of the new year. So we're to pray for those rains in the first month. And I think we ought to do it every year until God gives them to us. I think we're getting close to the year when that could occur. Maybe it's this year, maybe it isn't. We'll see. But we are supposed to ask, we're supposed to pray. And I want to put us in mind of that before we get there. That's only it's less than two months away when the first month begins. To be praying that God will give us that kind of blessings as he asks us to do. But the church is being preached to by people who don't understand what's going on, and there's no one saying the right things, basically. Verse 3, my anger was kindled against the shepherds, and I punished the goats. They weren't shepherds or sheep at all, they're goats. For the Eternal of hosts has visited his flock, the house of Judah, and has made them as his goodly horse in the battle. God is choosing out and looking to a few a remnant of Judah, the true spiritual Jews. Because most of the church is being taught the wrong thing and going the wrong way. Okay? Out of him came forth the corner, out of him the nail, of course Christ came through the line of Judah. Out of him the battle bow, out of him every oppressor together. And they shall be as mighty men which tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle. Remember what we read about Elijah and how he stood up against the world that was around him, the Babylonian system, Baal and Ekron, and killed the priests of Baal. It's going to happen again. It says so right here. They'll tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle, and they shall fight because the Eternal is with them, and the riders on horses shall be confounded. It says this in Micah 4, says it in Isaiah, I think it's 41. He'll make us a new threshing instrument to destroy our enemies before us. The Jerusalem will be so powerful because of God there with his people that anyone who comes against Jerusalem is going to wish they had not. And I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph and I will bring them again to place them. I'm going to bring them back to place them where? In the real Jerusalem where they came from. For I have mercy upon them, and they shall not be as though I had not and they shall be as though I had not cast them off, for I am the eternal their God, and will hear them. And they of Ephraim, that is, people in this country, true spiritual Jews in this country, shall be like a mighty man, and their heart shall rejoice as through wine. 
know how happy you can get sometimes with a little wine? And it just, some of the inhibitions go away and you can just be happy and you kind of forget the troubles for a few moments. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their heart shall rejoice in the eternal. Now, I think that confirms what I presented to you a little earlier. That God is going to make the church so powerful and turn the blessings back to the church in such a way that it will turn the hearts of the children to God and to their parents. It says so right here. I will hiss for them and gather them, for I have redeemed them, and they shall increase as they have increased. And it goes on and on. But he shows that it is going to take that kind of power, that kind of might, that kind of an impressive presentation such as Elijah did. The church will suddenly have the power. We have a church today that is basically powerless. And only the power of God will turn it around. It's coming. Will we be part of it? Well, we've got to go back to our father Abraham, the hole we were digged from, and the rock we were taken from. Now let's close this in Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 8. So here, Paul, and I think Paul wrote it, is writing what we call the faith chapter. And the greatest preponderance of this chapter, the majority of it, goes to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And most of that to Abraham and Sarah, his wife. He spends more time on them by far than he does on the others. By faith Abraham, verse 8, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out, not knowing where he went. You begin to understand already why God calls him the father of the faithful. He didn't know where he was going, had no idea. God just said, go. Now, God has been a little kinder with us, hasn't he? He's told us to leave Babylon in the midst of it and go out into the wilderness. Well, he's told us kind of where to go. He didn't tell Abraham. He just said, get up and go. And he went, not knowing where he went. That requires a certain amount of trust. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country. Wasn't familiar with it, hadn't been there before, seemed strange to him. Dwelling in tabernacles, didn't have a house, lived in tents wherever he went. Now, we think we have to have a house, don't we? I mean, that's just the American way to have a house. Abraham didn't even have a house. He carried his house on camels and mules. with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Went out, didn't know where it was going. He's looking for a city that God would make. Didn't know where it was. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age. She was way beyond menopause. 
Nothing going on there whatsoever when she conceived Isaac. Therefore sprang there even of one, and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. Had to wait a long time. And he hadn't been capable of a relationship with her that produces children in many, many years. Nothing happened. Nothing could happen. His body was as good as dead in that category. Now that would be a pretty bleak picture, wouldn't it? She's way past menopause, and he's way past Viagra. Ain't nothing going on. Hadn't for a long, long time. And God said, you're going to have a baby. He's going to be the father, and you're going to be the mother. And then they waited a long, long time after that. How many of you would believe that? What if you're in your 90s and God came and gave you a dream? Maybe gave it to husband and wife. You're going to have a baby. You wake up and tell your dream to each other. Everybody have a good laugh. Sure, sure. What was your name? <laughs> you know? Might not even, well, let's not even go there. That would take a real belief, wouldn't it? Now, they chuckled. <laughs> yeah, right. But they believed it anyway. I mean, you know, you can hear something and believe it, even though it can strike your funny bone. So even he laughed. <laughs> yeah, right. And so did she. She didn't believe it as much as he did at first. And she got in trouble for laughing. You laughed. No, I didn't. Yeah, you did. Oh, yeah, I guess I did. But they believed it. And it happened. You and I would not be here today if it hadn't happened. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them way off and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Didn't Peter say, we're strangers and pilgrims? Aren't we called ambassadors? This isn't our land now. We're of the kingdom of God, not of the kingdom of the nations of this world. That's why we don't vote. That's why we don't fight. God's kingdom is not of this world, or his servants would fight. Now, when he begins to bring his kingdom to the earth, some of his servants are going to fight right at the end. But they will represent the kingdom of God, not only as ambassadors anymore, but as witnesses against the world, and at their hand, many will die. God is going to bring the miracles, not them, so it's at the hand of God, really. They won't have control, but if somebody tries to kill them, fire will come out of their mouths and just incinerate them way it's going to happen. Do we believe that? I think we better. 
Abraham would have believed it. He could believe he could engender a child when he was dead. He'd believe this too. We better look where we came from. For they that say such, verse 14, think, uh, things declare plainly that they seek a country. If we'll live as pilgrims in this earth, not be a part of it, get away from it, walk away from it. That's what pilgrims did. What did the pilgrims do who came to America? They walked away from the oppression in England and Europe to come to a different land. Actually back to the land of promise where God had banned them because they killed the prophets and disobeyed God, and he drove them out of this promised land and only allowed them to come back in the 1600s to develop a new land. And we turned ourselves over to a Babylonian government in the District of Columbia, and now we're Israelites living in Babylon again, and we have to depart from it. We're pilgrims here. Truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But they didn't. It's only recently, really, in history that we returned here. But now they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. God is not going to let our faith, our trust, our belief in him go unanswered. He's prepared a city for us. He's going to bring it down. By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promise has offered up his only begotten son. Now there's a man that truly believed God. He believed he would have Isaac, even though he and his wife were way beyond that. And then when Isaac grew up, God said, go cut his throat. Abraham just saddled up, took Isaac out, laid him on an altar, Raised the knife to cut his throat. And God said, you don't have to do that. But he was going to. How many of us, if God appeared in a dream, said, take your son or your daughter out, go over to Torah Weave, set up a rock altar, lay your child out on it, slice their throat as a sacrifice to me. How many of us would believe God and saddle up and go do it? Now, when Abraham did that, he committed himself, said, I'm going to do it. Raise the knife. He was ready. God did not stop him until the last split second. Then he said, now I know, Abraham, you'll do anything I say. You are my bond slave. You trust me above everything there is. You believe what I say. You'll do what I say. Now, he had tested him a lot before that, but that had to be the ultimate test. Will you sacrifice your only son through Sarah? He knew all the promises God had made, that through Isaac he would be blessed. I don't know what was going through his mind. Maybe he thought, well, maybe God will resurrect him. He's already promised me. 
But he went ahead to do it. Of whom it was said that in Isaac shall your seed be called. Accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in an allegory or a figure or a type of Christ. I guess it says right there that that must have been what Abraham was thinking. Well, he promised me I'd have seed through Isaac. I guess he's going to raise him up. And see how that ties with Christ? He gave his only begotten son, sacrificed his own son. He actually went ahead and killed him and raised him up. We might believe in him and on him, both the Father and the Son, who truly was raised up to life from being absolutely dead, totally dead, and resurrected for us. Do we believe that? Do we live as if we believe that? Abraham's works were counted as righteousness. He lived as though he believed it. Well, I'm not going on to Isaac and Jacob and Joseph now because we want to start with Abraham. Now, we've seen here a summary of the very key important parts of Abraham's life. And I think we've seen how important it is here at the end that we look to Abraham. If we're to have faith on this earth, there is the source to go to to see how to live, to see how we need to react, to see what we need to be. Something that Elijah considered very, very important, and he called on the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our fathers. And we have to have our hearts turned to our heavenly father and to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob our forefathers, because they were faithful people, and we are to live as they lived. So I think it's important that we take some time to examine their lives, to go back and look at them carefully. And even though we've had a summary here, which is very important, I think that we could learn a lot more if we go back and read it and study it and analyze it in detail and spend some time on it, the, the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our fathers to look to the hole from whence we were digged. He tells us that in prophecy. Just before God begins to bless Zion and to give her a garden of God and a garden of Eden in the wilderness, he says, if you want to be part of that, you better look to the hole that you were digged from. So I think it's important that we consider their lives right now. Because it isn't very long until God is going to begin to give that kind of blessings. And I want to be part of it. I want you to be part of it. So I don't think it's any too early to look at these things. Maybe there's an Elijah to come that will do the things that Malachi says, the things that Elijah did, and facing down the prophets of Baal and so on. But it doesn't hurt us if we're going to be like Christ and have faith to begin to consider it ahead of that time. And then we're already in step. We're ready to go when God provides that kind of power and that kind of leadership. So, whether it's a prophetic thing right now, or whether it's just something for all Christians for all time, we still need to look to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if you'll go through, you'll find that all through the Bible, reference is made back to them. Just type in your concordance, 
on your PC study Bible or whatever you've got, put Abraham in there and hit go there and you'll be amazed at how many references there are in God's Word to Abraham. He's a very, very important character. All right, let's stop there for today and we'll pick it up there next time, God willing.